Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of The Lake Erie Campaign of 1813, Walter Ribka. Walter Ribka, author of the book The Lake Erie Campaign of 1813, can you explain where we're sitting right now? Uh, we are in the main exhibit hall of the Erie Maritime Museum, which is a part of the system of the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission. It's here in Erie, Pennsylvania, which is the site of where the squadron was built that fought in the Battle of Lake Erie in 1812, uh, the War of 1812. And uh, this exhibit hall is in a converted uh, turbine building, and it's uh, quite a grand hall, and it gives us the space to do some pretty dramatic exhibits. If you come here today, what do you see? Well, you see um, the uh, behind us in the background is a replica gun deck from the, the Briggs, Lawrence, and Niagara, which were the two principal warships on our side in the battle. And the uh, gun deck of the Lawrence has been actually subject to live cannon fire. We built guns that could fire a full charge, had the cooperation of the National Guard to use the artillery range at Fort Indian Town Gap, and had exact specifications so uh, side of the ship built so we could shoot holes through it and record exactly what the damage was because this was like experimental archaeology. There was no photography in those days, and there's no record, uh, no surviving uh, damaged ship sections, because the ships either sank and rotted away or they were repaired afterwards. And so you have all of these accounts of what the splinter damage was like, and splinters flying and causing the majority of casualties, but nobody's actually seen it. So we built the section to exact specs. We built the guns to be able to fire full charge, and we did it at the ranges that we recorded for the battle and the result was filmed at high-speed slow motion, and it's part of the exhibit here, and it's not a recruiting clip. What were the results? Well, the results were that when the ball penetrates from the outside, it, it makes a, a pretty clean, small hole, which was surprising, because the timber is so dense and packed in, it has no place to go, so the shattered, crumbled timber stays in the hole. But as it breaks through in the inside, it's like an entrance exit wound in flesh. The, the exit wound is often worse because it tears out, and it tears out large chunks of the inner planking. And so you have either from, from very small toothpick-sized splinters by the thousand on up to uh, jagged hunks of, you know, three, four, five inches across, like a big log that could really tear into somebody. You say in your book that ships in battles like this rarely sank. That's true, because the, uh, the, the, the weaponry they were subjected to was f firing solid shot, not explosive. And uh, the, the balls, it was round shot, and when they struck the water, they would either sink rapidly or they'd bounce up. And so it was very rare that you made a hit right at the waterline. Sometimes a ship would roll away on a windy day with a lot of wave action. They might roll over or away from the action and expose some of their bottom planking, and a, a shot might be traveling on a downward arc and strike but it was pretty rare to get hit below the waterline. Now, if someone was, if we were sitting here in 1813, what would we see? Well, right here in 1813, we'd probably be on the shoreline or maybe 100 yards out into the bay sitting on landfill, but we would be in a bay of, uh, the, enclosed by the Presque Isle Peninsula, that's the harbor of Erie, Pennsylvania. Behind us up the bluff would be a largely log cabin town of 500 inhabitants that had swelled to maybe a couple of thousand people on site with the militia companies that were summoned to guard the shipyard and 
try to protect the site in case the British made an attack. And uh, the background noise would probably be a lot of uh, hammering and sawing and uh, pounding and uh, the noise of building ships uh, in the spring. Now, by this time of the year, if we were, this is, uh, this is October, by September 23rd, the Lawrence had returned in a shattered state as the hospital ship for the wounded and was sent back ahead. And I don't remember the exact date, but in October, within a few weeks, the rest of the squadron would have come back from Put-in Bay, the Detroit area, to winter here. So this particular day was probably a pretty quiet one in 1813, but some pretty, pretty exciting, noisy stuff had happened before and after. There's a lot of shipbuilding going on here at the time? Well, not, not a lot, because the economy of the lakes wouldn't support a large uh, population of ships. There wasn't that much cargo to carry. There were, this Erie was a, a major port for the time, but 500 people in the town, Buffalo, a uh, few hundred more. Cleveland was 50 houses. Uh, so there were a few small schooners operating, carrying small cargoes. But for the war effort, six vessels were built here in the winter of 1812-1813. Did all the ships that sailed on Lake Erie have to be built on Lake Erie? Yes, they did, because, uh, or they could have been built in Lake Huron or uh, possibly Lake Michigan, but there wasn't any building activity out that far west at the time. Uh, Detroit might have built some ships. Uh, that was the center of the fur trade, and so there, there was shipbuilding in Detroit. But uh, Detroit, Erie, Buffalo were the only places where vessels were built, and there was no communication. If you needed a ship for Lake Ontario, you had to build it there, and for Lake Erie, you had to build because there was Niagara Falls in between. Where'd they get the material? Uh, the next tree behind the waterfront, and the tree behind that, and the tree behind that. Actually, by, uh, I, I say that a little facetiously, by 1812, 1813, they had probably cleared most of the timber for the immediate mile or two around the town because just the demand for building material, the demand for firewood uh, would have probably stripped the, the surrounding area pretty clean by that time. But just a, a mile or two or three or four, a few miles inland, there was a virtually unlimited supply of timber. At least it looked like that at the time. Where'd they get the guns? Uh, the guns came, some came overland or by water on the ice from Buffalo, which had probably been transported from uh, the New York Navy Yard, they'd gone up the Hudson and up the Mohawk River to Sackett's Harbor initially because that was Chauncey, the, the Lake Ontario base was the major naval base. And the uh, rest of them would have come from a foundry at Georgetown outside of Washington and come by Plank Road to Pittsburgh and then probably up Canal Boat to the Allegheny and French Creek and then by road from Waterford to here. How did they decide that they needed to build ships here? Uh, well, that's, that's interesting because Daniel Dobbins was a local shipmaster. And he was at uh, the fort at Mackinac Island when it was taken by the British in uh, July of 1812. And uh, uh, he, his ship was used to evacuate civilians from Mackinac and go down to Detroit, where the U.S. Army took, uh, took it over as a transport that they might need. And uh, so Dobbin stayed with his ship. He was there when the British attacked or uh, surrounded Detroit to lay siege to it, and it surrendered. And, uh, then he had to leave the ship. He was given a pass to escort some civilians to Cleveland in, a, in an open boat. He pressed on to Erie, and when he got to Erie, the uh, general and the militia, General Meade, said, uh, hearing from Dobbins, that the, the forts had fallen, Detroit had fallen. You know, this was a tremendous disaster. We had lost the entire Northwest. And uh, so he encouraged Dobbins to go to Washington. And when Dobbins got to Washington and reported firsthand to the cabinet and the secretary of the Navy, he made the case for building at Erie as being the best site. Uh, because it had a very protected harbor and was uh, in, in a few days travel of Pittsburgh, which was a source of iron material. 
uh, he, he had to, uh, by, uh, to be released by the British, he had to promise he wouldn't be a combatant in the war anymore? Well, that story is, is a very strange story because there are a couple of versions of it. You see, the practice of parole at the time was, uh, was a, actually a pretty humane practice that both sides uh, used, which saved them the difficulty of taking care of prisoners. Uh, you would release somebody on their signing an oath that uh, they would not participate in hostilities or bear arms until they had been formally exchanged, meaning you'd swapped prisoners of equal rank and they were released to be put back into circulation. Now that applies to military personnel. Dobbins was a civilian at the time, so I do not know how parole applied to Dobbins. Uh, and the, the, the story, one story is that he escaped because he was wanted and liable to execution for breaking parole because when they, somebody saw him in Detroit carrying arms, um, now whether he was carrying those for self-defense or because those were just his possessions and he needed them off the ship, but he was considered to be under arms and he had signed parole at Mackinac. Well, so that made him liable for execution. But that story is, it doesn't make sense, frankly, for him as a civilian. So I've never, I've never understood uh, why he was considered under parole. I think he was uh, just known to be a shipmaster who had an intimate knowledge of the lakes, and he was given a, a pass to uh, not be interfered with when he was taking some soldiers who had signed their parole to Cleveland as his passengers. Who was he that the President of the United States would have taken his word to build ships in Erie in particular? Well, he was one of the few shipmasters. Uh, there weren't very many people sailing on the lakes at that time, and uh, being uh, having a merchant ship and sailing about, he had a pretty good knowledge of the lakes. He probably came with a recommendation uh, from General Meade, um, and uh, um, so they, they took his word for it. And he is the Dobbins of Dobbins Landing that's over my shoulder here? Correct, correct. And. Uh, so he got a, uh, he enlisted in the Navy at that point and was appointed as a sailing master, was given a commission as a sailing master, which was typical practice for merchant ship captains going into the Navy to be uh, given the rank of sailing master. It was subordinate to lieutenants. It's, it's, it's a, uh, it was a middle level rank, but it was for people who knew how to navigate, knew how to run a ship. Now how important was it to the whole war effort that Lake Erie be controlled? Uh, actually, it was very important because the, um, the way to move anything heavy efficiently is to float it right down to this day and probably always will be. But in 1813, 1812, 1813, this area had very few roads. A lot of Ohio was swamp. A lot of this was wilderness, undeveloped, heavily wooded. And the Native American population, the majority were uh, in the West, were uh, either neutral or allied with the British. And many of them were allied with the British because they recognized that it was the best hope of hanging on to their land. And so, uh, uh, when the U.S. tried moving columns of men or troops through the area, they were subject to raids, to interdiction, to having to fight their way through. So you basically weren't going to get much moved by way of men and supplies along the shore routes. Uh, the, the key to movement was to be able to go over the lake. Were, were there ships going back and forth and having little battles periodically before the big battle? Uh, no, actually not. Uh, there, there, were, there were no ship-to-ship -ship engagements that we're aware of. The British had a head start in the war because they had an armed transport service to move uh, material for the government. It was called the Canadian Provincial Marine. So they had five small armed vessels on the lake. We didn't have any. Uh, we took a, a schooner, the Adams, and uh, had it, uh, I think, was taken into government service. I don't even know if it had a single gun on it. And as soon as it sailed up the Detroit River, it was captured. Um, 
So when, we were starting from scratch. When the U.S. decided they needed a fleet on Lake Erie, how, how did they decide how many ships they needed, what types of ships? Well, uh, the initial thought was uh, to build gunboats, which were small, like 50 to 60 foot vessels that there were several stock designs available for that the government had invested heavily in. And they got the idea for these gunboats from shore, shore craft they'd seen in the Mediterranean during the Barbary Wars. In fact, the specifications that Dobbins came back with called for a lateen rig, which is a triangular sail that Mediterranean vessels have and might have also been useful in the Chesapeake. On his own initiative, he decided to rig them as schooners, which was the rig that seamen on the lakes were more familiar with and was more suited to the local weather conditions, and it's a good thing he did that too. Um, but uh, uh, they built some, they were, so they were starting out small, but then very soon uh, Chauncey, uh, Captain Isaac Chauncey, who was the commander of the whole Great Lakes Front for the, for the U.S., uh, he was the, had been the commandant of the New York Navy Yard before the war. He was transferred up to Sackett's Harbor to establish a fleet on Lake Ontario. And then Lake Erie was a secondary consideration. By the end of 1812, he had placed timber cutting orders to get sufficient wood in hand to build two large brigs. Now he started placing those timber cutting orders at Buffalo, but then he changed his mind when he came and visited Erie over New Year's Day of 1813 and was persuaded by Dobbins that this was the better building site. So he said, all right, stop cutting in Buffalo, start cutting here, and produced a timber order that was uh, roughly the sizes and dimensions that would be needed for a vessel, vessels that size. Where'd they get the crew? Uh, well, initially the, it was a problem just getting a building crew because there were very few local boat builders. And uh, Dobbins had contracted one from Buffalo to start building two of the gunboats but uh, Chauncey recognized that a, a crew was needed here. He had a shipbuilder, Henry Eckford, working for him at, at uh, uh, Sackett's Harbor on Lake Ontario, but they, were, they had more than enough work to do there. So he contracted Noah Brown, a New York shipbuilder, to bring a gang initially of just 14 men here. Brown got here, took one look, and realized the size of the job and said, we need you know, hundreds of people. We need to start building log cabins before, to put people in before we can even start on the ships. Brown really was uh, somebody who could grasp the size of a job and gear up to it and recognize the order of magnitude. So that got the building effort started. Then uh, seamen were sent from New York Navy Yard with Chauncey initially up to Sackett's Harbor to get started, uh, seamen and officers. And then others were sent from uh, or volunteered from other areas. Uh, Oliver Hazard Perry was in Newport, Rhode Island in command of a gunboat squadron, which he recognized was local coastal defense, not likely to see action and um, uh, he wanted to get on one of the saltwater ships, so he was petitioning the Secretary of the Navy for a command or at least a position on one of the uh, other sh seagoing ships. It, it, he wasn't getting an appointment uh, anytime soon because uh, we had so few ships. We had more officers than we had ships uh, at the beginning. So he volunteered for service on the lakes because he figured that would be a less desirable area because there was less chance of capturing uh, merchant ships and gaining prize money. So there was uh, and more chance of seeing action there and, and being a, uh, a less desirable post to go to for senior officers, he'd have more chance of getting a command of a ship there. So he volunteered for the lakes and it wasn't, uh, but it wasn't until uh, January of 1813 that the Secretary of the Navy uh, got around to seeing his application and saying, oh yeah, okay, we could use you up there and sent him to Chauncey. And then Chauncey sent him on to Erie. Were they building ships at the time when he arrived? They were building ships on Lake Ontario, and the shipbuilding effort had already been started by Noah Brown here. Uh, well, actually, um, Dobbins had started it in November of 1812 with two small schooners. 
that they were slowly working on. Uh, Brown had gotten here in March, uh, about March 6th. Perry got here about March 26th, about three weeks later. And so, and he came with initially about 25 men and small groups of men and uh, officers were coming bit by bit, month by month, but he was always short of men. That was the major complaint between him uh, against Chauncey by, by him. But Chauncey had the priority on men because it was strategically the more important area on Lake Ontario. What was involved in building a ship like the Niagara or the Lawrence back then? Well, um, an, an incredible amount of hand labor. Uh, you know, there, there was no machinery, no mills, nothing to saw lumber, uh, no sawmills. Um, uh, every tree had to be converted into plank or converted into squared timber by being passed on rollers over a pit with a man down in the bottom of the pit pulling on a, a long saw and a man on top of the log pulling it up up and down, up and down, up and down to make the strokes. And, uh, uh, you know, so a pit saw would be used for, for getting the timber down to a size that then the shipwrights would work it with adzes and planes and saws. Every hole had to be drilled with, uh, you know, hand power with a, an auger. So it was a, a tremendous amount of muscular effort went into building a ship, as well as a lot of skilled effort at getting all the curved shapes and shaping the timber right. It was, uh, it was, it was an art as well as a uh, just an industrial process. Did they make the sails here or did they bring in pre-made sails? Uh, no, the sails were made here by sailmakers who had been imported from Philadelphia, uh, contracted to come with the cloth. Uh, most of the cloth came from Philadelphia. Some of it had been made in Pittsburgh. So when uh, Commodore Perry arrived, what was the situation in the, in the shipbuilding? Were the ships already ready to go? Oh no, they were long, long way short of ready to go. He, he arrived when the, uh, the brigs would probably just be keel assemblies with some of the backbone and some of the frames going up because Brown had only gotten here three weeks before and uh, not that much timber had been cut before he got here. And, uh, and his first uh, task was housing his men and, and building housing, probably the initial, they might have still been just uh, uh, fitting together log cabin accommodations and building a hall to use for a sail loft. Uh, he recognized they'd need a big enclosed space for sewing sails. And so they were probably just working on infrastructure when Perry arrived. In fact, Perry only spent three days here before then going to Pittsburgh to start letting purchasing contracts for shot and, and uh, um, you know, various iron articles that were needed to be produced. And what was the state of the war on the lakes? Had there been other battles on the lakes by then? There hadn't been battles on the lakes, but the, uh, the situation over the winter was kind of a stalemate because it was, uh, you know, the place was just frozen in. It was a particularly hard winter and, uh, you know, the lake was a sheet of ice and um, uh, pretty heavy snowfalls were recorded on the, on the ground and on the area. Everything was frozen in. But in the, the year before, in the summer of 1812, the British on the border got word of the declaration of war before our own troops did. And so the garrison at Mackinac was taken completely by surprise. Now, even if they weren't taken completely by surprise, there wasn't much they could do. There were 54 men in the fort. And when the British showed up with about 200 redcoats and several hundred Indians and said, we want the keys, uh, they got the keys. <laughs> and when Detroit, uh, when General Brock, uh, the initial invasion plan was uh, U.S. General Hull, who was a Red War veteran, was ordered to go invade across the Detroit River. And he didn't think it was a terribly good idea because uh, he recognized that without control of the lake, their supply lines were likely to be interdicted by the Indians. But he, he w went across the Detroit River to uh, try to attack the fort at uh, Amherstburg, Fort Malden. 
but he, didn't, he never launched the attack because as soon as he got across the river, he heard that the Mackinac had fallen, that the British and Indians were on the way. He knew that Brock would be on the way. He felt very intimidated and, and uh, sort of surrounded, and he retreated to Detroit, and then the British uh, persuaded him to surrender without a fight. Um, on the basis that uh, it was the only way to avoid, if, if they had to fight their way into the fort, he said there would be no restraining the Indians and all the civilians and the women and children and the men, everybody would be massacred. That was the fear that they put into him. And uh, so he surrendered Detroit with all his men in arms and the, the cannon and ammunition. And so uh, Fort Dearborn, which was Chicago, had been wiped out, Mackinac surrendered. The, all three forts in the U.S. side of the uh, Great Lakes had fallen before the winter of 1812 uh, was out. Was, was had started really. Did, did the United States have any ships on Lake Erie at the time? Uh, only the schooner Adams, the army transport which had been captured. So we were starting from scratch. When Perry arrived, what was his mission? I mean, did, did he have uh, an assignment to go and find the British and get them? Well, uh, well his mission was to prepare a squadron to uh, get a naval station established, which was kind of a a job on top of building. It was to be a place where you could house, get, get housing for sailors, have seamen come there, have a place to keep track of arms and ammunition and equipment sent, and so that he could fit out the ship for fighting, uh, the ships for fighting as they were built by the civilian contractor. So he was to take delivery of the ships from the contractor, and the naval sailors were the people who were skilled in rigging. They did it for maintenance of the ship all the time, so the riggers were going to be his sailors. Uh, so they were working on the building effort. The, the contractor, Noah Brown, had carpenters and they built the hulls and, um, and contract labor did the sails, but the rigging was done by uh, the naval crew. Tell me a little bit about Oliver Hazard Perry. Who, where was he from? How did he get in the Navy? Um, well, he was from Newport, Rhode Island. His father had been in the Navy and uh, had command of a frigate during the Barbary Pirate Wars in the early 1800s. And uh, Perry had served as a midshipman uh, apprentice on his father's frigate. And he had went, gone into the Navy at age uh, 13. And by now he was age 27. He had had uh, command of a schooner before the war, but uh, had, uh, uh, had unfortunately lost it on a reef. And very often that's a career-ending move. But in this case, it was dense fog. And uh, uh, the, the civilian pilot, who was the navigational advisor, took most of the uh, uh, the blame in the court-martial, and Perry kept his, kept his commission. But it was probably a bit of a mark against him. I mean, generally in the Navy, when you lose a ship for any reason less than having it shot out from under you, they, they take a dim view of it. Did the Navy consider sending Perry to Erie kind of a, well, we'll get him out of the pictures, or was it a choice assignment? Um, I, I, I don't think it's probably either. It's kind of in between. The Navy decided to send him to Chauncey, because it was Chauncey's decision where to send him, what to do with him, whether to put him as a lieutenant on one of his larger ships, uh, whether to give him his own command of a small ship or to keep him in Sackett's Harbor. But Chauncey recognized that Perry had supervised the building of the gunboat squadron in Erie. He was one of the more, ex as inexperienced as he might be by later day professional Navy standards, by the, what was the material available in 1812, 1813. He was one of the more experienced officers, at least in terms of building and organizing a crew for Chauncey. So Chauncey thought he, the best use of him was to send him on to Lake Erie. What was he like, personality? Um, well, he, he was considered to be a, uh, um, a very exacting commander, somebody who demanded respect, somebody who was very professionally conscious of doing a good job, uh, somebody who was very competent um, and uh, did not 
suffer people to take liberties with him, but at the same time was not, was not really very stuffy. He was, let's say, correct, but he, he, he had a sense of humor. He was popular. Uh, he was also known to be kind of impetuous. He had a temper. He would uh, uh, get, uh, get worked up about something, maybe do something impetuous, but th then, then it wouldn't last. He'd calm down and, and, and think better of it. And, uh, uh, but he was also considered to be very ambitious, very uh, aggressive, very patriotic, very determined. You write in the book that uh, he uh, wrote a lot of letters complaining about the quality of his officers. Yes, he, he was constantly complaining to Chauncey, and then he, he made his situation worse because he also, on the excuse that maybe Chauncey might be at sea on Lake Ontario or he might not get the letters in time, he was copying the Secretary of the Navy. Now, the, the grounds for this were theoretically to make sure communication was maintained because he might not be able to communicate with Chauncey. In reality, he's, he's going around uh, and behind his, uh, his commanding officer to go higher up the chain, hoping that he'll get some, some more help. This is William Henry Harrison? Uh, no, this is Secretary of the Navy, uh, William Jones. William Henry Harrison was an army general who was governor of Indiana and was in charge of the army that was uh, out west uh, in the spring of 1813. But um, uh, Harrison was somebody that uh, Perry was meant to aid to help him retake Detroit. Part of his mission was to help uh, assist the army in, in their campaign by providing transporter, by getting the British squadron out of the way. But uh, he was not subordinate to Harrison. They, they wanted, Harrison was Army, he was Navy. Did, uh, did Perry know how big the British fleet was on Lake Erie? Uh, yes, he did, because there was a, still a lot of, uh, first off, there weren't that many ships. And then people knew them from before the war. People had been trading back and forth. There wasn't the probably, uh, th there weren't enough troops to enforce a, a rigid closure of the border. And so people who knew each other between the states and Canada probably continued to visit and, and trade and uh, exchange goods um, and therefore intelligence uh, long after the war started. You say that the, uh, the British ship, the HMS Detroit, had a band on board? Uh, at the beginning of the battle, it's recorded that they had a band and they played Rule Britannia before the opening shot to uh, cheer themselves up. Did, when, the, when the battle came, uh, when was it, first of all? Well, the, the battle was fought uh, later, after, at the end of summer, September 10th, 1813, was the date of the battle. Who picked the date? Um, it's the date that just worked out that uh, Barclay, the British commander, was ready to come out, barely ready. The Detroit had been finished and was capable of sailing, and he had to go. He had to do something because Perry had been blockading the, the British in for a month and they were running short of supplies. They were getting starved out. So he had to open a supply line or they would lose their ships, they would lose the, they would lose the whole situation and he'd be blamed for it. You say in the, the book, uh, September 10th, 1813, the British squadron came out more in desperation than in con confidence. Yes. Where were they holed up? Uh, Amherstburg, which is across the Detroit River on the, on the Ontario side. It's uh, south of Windsor. It's in the southeast uh, corner there of the, uh, the Detroit River area. So it's uh, 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 that, that lower part of uh, Ontario that's on the Detroit River. Well, that was their base. What was the day like, the day of the battle? Uh, hot, light air. It was the end of summer day. Very, very sultry, very, very light wind. Was that a good day for a battle or a bad day weather-wise? Well, weather-wise, it, wa it wasn't a great day in a sense because it was very difficult to maneuver because there was so little wind. 
the British had the weaker squadron. They had sailed the night before, hoping to get down to, to put in bay, where the, which they knew Perry was using as an anchorage, because it's the best anchorage around, the best harbor around in the islands in that part of the lake. And they were hoping to be there at daylight so they could jump in and maybe surprise him. And uh, it didn't work out that way. They had such little wind the night of the 9th that they were still 10 miles short when sighted at dawn on September 10th. And the Americans, uh, the wind enabled the British to sail a straight course, southwest wind, but it was right in the face of Perry to sail out of the anchorage. And he had a very hard time getting his ships clear of the anchorage. Now, you know something about sailing ships. Can you yes. explain how you learned it and what you do? Well, um, I've had a pretty, uh, to me, very interesting career at any rate. Uh, I've always worked in 19th century ships that were used for either educational or museum purposes. I started sailing on a rebuilt 1885 schooner, the Pioneer that belonged to South Street Seaport Museum, still does. And I worked on the rebuilding of the Alyssa, which is an iron bark from 1877, belongs to the Galveston Historical Foundation, uh, sails part of the year. and. Uh, I'd worked for Sea Education Association out of Woods Hole, Massachusetts. They do college level programs on schooners and brigantines at sea. Uh, so I'd always worked or gone back and forth between either museum restoration projects on old ships or sailing vessels for educational purposes. And uh, I was recruited to come to Niagara in 1991 to see about establishing a sailing program for it, training volunteers and looking at the feasibility of taking the ship to various ports for exhibit purposes. And, it just evolves into a, uh, a very interesting job. But I, I had been sailing square rig before that, which is why I was hired to sail Niagara. What is the Niagara that you're responsible for now? Well, the Niagara is a ship that represents the ship built in 1813. It started as a restoration of the remains of the original, but the desire was to have a seaworthy ship. And uh, by the time they got into the job, it was obvious that uh, it was going to be the next ship. So she carries. Uh, quite a few pieces of timber of the original, over 60 pieces of framing are carried in between the frames of the ship as a symbolic presence, but they're not structurally load-bearing. So basically this is a ship that was built in 1988, but incorporating all of the known details of the original based on the archaeology of the wreck of the original that came up. The, the, the shape, the length, the, uh, the angles of certain things determine the rest of the shape. Uh, so she incorporates all that known information, but she was built 88. Uh, been sailing since 91 on a regular basis and uh, she's a representative, a uh, very accurate representative of how those ships sailed. She's um, rigged as a brig, which the original was, which is two masts fully square rigged. And uh, we sail her out of Erie as a sailing school vessel now. We have people who come on, pay a tuition to come on for a day and get a glimpse into the wooden world of the sailing ship. We have people who pay a tuition to come on for three weeks and live and work alongside the crew and really start learning what the work of a seaman was at that time. What was the life of a seaman at the time? Um, it could be pretty hard, but life ashore could be pretty hard too. But the, uh, the, 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 the seaman's work was generally for younger men. I mean, it was, it was hard, very, very arduous work, uh, pretty hazardous work because they had to work aloft, they had to climb the rigging. They had to be out on the lake and at sea when it would be stormy, and uh, uh, it was just a very, very dangerous occupation because the, uh, the hazards were so great. It was not just that the work was hard, but the, 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 the risk of shipwreck was pretty high, because the, uh, especially on the lakes, because the lakes weren't charted at the time. How much time would they have spent out on the water 
prior to the battle? Did they, did they go out on sorties or did they stay at uh, Yes, they did. Uh, Perry, they, they worked on building the squadron and rigging and fitting it out uh, from the winter up through July. And then the beginning of August, Perry got the ships over the sandbar at the mouth of Erie Harbor and sailed west uh, to, because uh, he, he was going to block in the British at their base, because he, he had gone looking for them by Long Point, didn't find them, had word that that was probably where they were. So we sailed west to be, and he was at various anchorages for three weeks before the battle. So they sailed, uh, it took them four days to sail there, uh, to uh, put in bay, and that was the longest time that they were continuously underway. But thereafter, he'd be sailing for maybe 24, 36, 48 hours, then be anchored for a day or two days, sail again for a couple of days, and all that time he's drilling the crew. They're practicing, practicing, practicing. Did they fire the guns a lot? Uh, they f I, I don't know how many times they fired the guns live because they would have had to conserve ammunition because uh, they, they didn't know how quickly they could replace it, so they might not do a tremendous amount of live firing. But I know they did some. How accurate were the guns? Uh, not very. The, uh, the long guns were capable of throwing a ball about a mile to a mile and an eighth, maybe a mile and a quarter. Um, but what came out of the mouth of the gun is what I call a cone of improbability. Uh, because as the range increased, your chances of a hit were decreasing. Because it's, it's a round ball, theoretically, it might not be entirely round. It might have a little uh, windage more one side or the other, uh, looseness to, for tolerance to go down the muzzle of the gun. It's not rifled. Uh, and also with the motion of the ship, you don't have an exact mechanism of fire, so you don't have an exact moment of discharge of where it is in the roll cycle. So a long-range hit was more luck than, uh, than aiming. The, the chances of hit are when you got down to really close two, three hundred yard range. That's when it got lethal. Would they fire all the guns at the same time? Uh, pretty close to. The, when they fired a broadside, they would deliberately stagger it a little bit. They practiced firing uh, what they call rolling broadsides on big ships where you fired uh, starting from the bow and everybody was just a half second behind everybody else so that you didn't strain the, the hull as badly, uh, letting it absorb the recoil. But even if you ordered a simultaneous broadside, you probably weren't going to get it because everybody is touching matches to a touch hole. It's a manual process, even with flintlocks. It's a manual process of yanking a cord and how, how long it takes the fire to communicate itself down a few inches of metal tube into the gun. So within a second or two, there'd be this probably ragged discharge would be the closest to simultaneous they could come. How long did it take to reload? Uh, well, a well-drilled crew could theoretically do around a minute, but I think that would only be for the first few minutes because we've done this with our own crews and it's hard work and people will slow down after a while. And uh, especially as the action wears on, uh, people are getting exhausted. And then you're probably losing people. As people get hit, your gun crews are coming down to fewer people. So it takes longer to do the work. So my guess is they might have started at around a minute. But after four or five rounds, it was a minute and a half, and then two, and then three, and then four. And you know the rate of fire would have slowed as the action progressed. And you said the battle was at Put-in Bay? Well, uh, to the west of Put-in Bay. Where's but that? Put -in -Bay Put-in Bay is on South Bass Island. It's a, a group of islands that are uh, north of Sandusky. It's at the west end of Lake Erie. After the group of islands, there's about 30 miles of lake before you reach the Michigan shore between Toledo and Detroit. And Perry was, on, was not on the Niagara when the battle started. Uh, that's true. His flagship was the Lawrence. But uh, the Lawrence was, uh, Perry's maneuvering his, his tactical choices 
were um, uh, perhaps a little impetuous that day. He was so anxious to close, he, he ordered his ships to close rapidly with the British in very light air. Uh, his second in command, Jesse Duncan Elliott, did not support him. And so the Niagara hung back at the outskirts of the action while the Lawrence went in. The two largest British vessels were able to concentrate on her, and so she got very badly shot up. And it was only late in the battle that Perry transferred by boat to the Niagara and was in command of the Niagara at the end of the battle. How did uh, ships communicate with each other while the battle was going on? Well, for most of the battle, they didn't. Everybody was on their own. Um, the communication, the primary communication, would be by signal flag. But a lot of the battle, I think, was fought in a pretty flat calm because once the action began at about 12 o'clock, by 12.30, the ships are in position, the final position that the Lawrence was taking this beating from, uh, from the British ships, and nothing changed for about two hours. So I suspect it went pretty windless and ships were in their same relative positions for a long time. That would also permit very dense clouds of smoke to build up and the flags would just be hanging like limp rags. So even if Perry had set it issued more orders for more signals to be sent. It's not likely that they would have been seen. Can you explain who Lawrence was that the Lawrence was named after? Yes, uh, Lawrence was Captain James Lawrence, who had been decorated for um, his success in uh, sinking the, uh, when in command of the Sloop of War Hornet. He had sunk the British uh, Sloop of War Peacock in uh, early 1813 down in uh, off Brazil and he was promoted and given a larger vessel. He was promoted to command to the frigate Chesapeake, which was in Boston at the time. Now, unfortunately, he took the Chesapeake out uh, in a not terribly ready condition uh, with uh, a lot of, uh, there'd been a turnover in crew. She'd been in a yard period. They hadn't done very much training. Uh, they had a lot of new crew. They sailed out and met a very, very good British frigate, the Shannon, and uh, in a few minutes, she was captured by the Shannon. And uh, the only thing, and, and Lawrence was mortally wounded in the engagement, and the only thing we could salvage from it was his courage and determination in that his, he was carried below. He was exhorting his crew to don't give up the ship, fight her till she sinks. But in point of fact, uh, the British boarded and in a very fierce hand-to-hand -hand action captured the ship a few minutes later. But uh, Lawrence's dying words were the inspiration for don't give up the ship. So usually uh, the phrase don't give up the ship is associated with Perry. That's correct, but it's actually the, the words of Lawrence, which were widely quoted as, uh, uh, as being the words of a, of, a, of a brave man dying and exhorting his men to do their duty and doing his best for the country. And uh, the Secretary of the Navy ordered the, brig, the brigs being built here, he ordered one to be named Lawrence, the other Niagara, because we had recently invaded the Niagara Peninsula in Canada and thought that was a success at the time. So when he ordered the, the brig named Lawrence, Perry, uh, according to Purser Hamilton, it was his suggestion, but Perry accepted it, that they uh, do a motto flag with don't give up the ship as his, as his, uh, you know, as his motto. And uh, so Perry adapted that. And, and so it's associated with Lake Erie because it was the flag flown on Perry's ship. I want to read this one thing about uh, the, the morning of the battle. You say, uh, there was time to serve a cold meal of salted pork and hardtack accompanied by the customary before action grog, which in this case, would most likely have been frontier rye whiskey, a stiff four ounces diluted with about as much water. So everybody on the crew got four ounces of whiskey before the battle? I don't know if it was exactly four ounces, but the, 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 the daily ration was uh, generally at least two ounces, often twice a day, noon meal and sometimes in the evening, but at least once a day they'd get a, a two ounces of, water, of uh, hard alcohol 
with um, uh, uh, at least an equal amount of water. And that was their, their ration that went usually with the midday meal. Now going into action, it was generally customary to uh, give them a, a little stiffer reinforcement. So it might not quite be a double, but it would, it would be about that. So when the battle commenced, you said that Perry took the, the um, Lawrence right up to the British ships. Was that wise strategy or was he being foolish? Well, um, let's say it was accepting a high level of risk that he didn't exactly have to at the time. Um, and that's, I think, why Elliot didn't follow him in because he thought his commander was making a catastrophic mistake. Now, if Elliot had followed him in, it would have worked because Perry did get into close range before the wind died and if he'd had the Niagara with him, I think the battle would have been over in half the time with half our casualties. Did Perry expect Elliot to come in with him? Oh yes, he did. He, uh, uh, and, and some of the ships went in with him, the, uh, the Ariel and Scorpion, the two small fast schooners that could keep up were at the head of the line and they went with him. The Caledonia followed him down, although she was a slow sailor, but the Niagara just deliberately kept her sails aback and uh, uh, you know, close to the wind and, and maneuvered the ship to be in an almost stationary position and just at the edge of the range of his 12-pounder long guns. And I think that's because uh, he, he thought that Perry was accepting a, an, uh, an unnecessary level of risk because, see, when you turn, Perry had to do something. As the battle was closing in, he had the stronger squadron. He had nine ships to six, and he had more long guns as well as carronades, and in weight of shot, he outgunned the British three to two. He had very definite advantages, but because he was overtaking on, after a long chase, his smaller vessels were slower, and his squadron was widely scattered. He had them scattered over several miles of lake. Half of his squadron was not even in range. But the principal fighting power on both sides was in the two large brigs for the Americans and the two large ships for the British. So when Perry gets in close to range at uh, just before noon, the Detroit is primarily armed with long guns and she can hit him and does. And the, uh, uh, because even though the guns aren't that accurate at long range, this is such a calm day. There's no rock and roll, there's no wave action, there's not much to interfere with aim. And so they're maybe not making a lot of hits, but they're making some. And Perry can't reply yet because his primary armament is carronades, which were a trade-off to have a gun that for a given weight of, of capacity on the ship, you could throw a much heavier ball, but at a shorter range. So he has overwhelming fire superiority in terms of weight of shot, but he has to get the range down before he can do that. And so he, uh, he had the choice of maybe pulling out of the line, widening the distance, going back to maybe pass a tow rope to his gunboats, just trying to maneuver and see what the day brought. Maybe later in the day, the wind would be better, the wind would be different. Uh, he had the choice of not engaging until he had closed up his squadron, but he chose to point his bows on right at the enemy line and close the range, much as Nelson had at Trafalgar, to expose himself to deadly raking fire where they, they're across his bow, they can fire down the length of his deck, he can't shoot back. But he's saying, if we can endure this for 20 minutes, we've got enough firepower that we've got them once we get there. But the risk is that what if the wind dies and you're only halfway there? And I think that's what Elliot saw and decided not to follow him. And, uh, but if Elliot had followed him, it would have worked out much better. Did they ever put guns on the bow of the ship? Well, there, there really wasn't room. The, uh, the ships might have one or two guns that would fire right ahead or right astern. Uh, generally, in ahead, you had the, the bowsprit and the head rigging for the sails up there and the anchor gear. 
So the best you could do was have a gun up forward that was maybe at an angle and you could slew the ship with a rudder for a moment to get a shot dead ahead. But you really had all your real fire capability is on the side. How did Perry's strategy work out? Well, uh, for a while it looked like it was a disaster because he, uh, when, when Elliot didn't support him and he's got only the lesser firepower of the smaller vessels, three smaller vessels with him in the Lawrence and then the, the Queen Charlotte can close up with the Detroit uh, and the schooner Lady Prevost can pitch in, uh, the British are concentrating what firepower they have on the Lawrence and it's a close range and it becomes just a very deadly action where the Lawrence suffers horrific casualties. You, you describe a scene, I guess it was on the Lawrence, where uh, they were in the, the room with the, with the gunpowder. It was lit by candlelight and a yes. candle fell off. Yeah, the, the, uh, the magazine was not below waterline because the ship was so shallow. They, they might have had the, power the powder barrels themselves might have been below waterline, but the room, the filling room, uh, was exposed to fire of, of shot coming through the ship. And one of the balls uh, that came through from the British knocked out the lantern that was, would be in a separate little compartment with a glass pane to prevent any spark coming into the filling room where they were taking powder out of barrels and putting it in bags to pass up to the guns. Well, they, they knocked the, shattered the lantern, the glass, and the, and the candle fell out of the lantern and was about to fall into an open powder barrel when the gunner put his hand out and caught the candle. And if he hadn't caught the candle, then the battle would have ended with uh, Perry's ship exploding into smithereens and probably doing a tremendous amount of damage to the nearby British ships, and then maybe Elliot would have taken the Niagara in and cleaned up at that time. Now, at some point in the battle, uh, Perry struck the colors of the Lawrence. Well, he, he didn't strike the Lawrence's colors. He decided to transfer, and he delegated command to Lieutenant Yarnall. So the Lawrence still had the U.S. flag flying over it, at the time Perry transferred, he took his don't give up the ship flag, which designated, which people would recognize would, would be his ship that he would be commanding from. And he took the don't give up the ship flag with him when he transferred by boat to go over to the Niagara. He was very, very lucky at that time because uh, even though his ship had become this slaughterhouse around him, and this is the most extraordinary part of the story to my mind, is that the casualty rate in, in War of 1812 in, in age of fighting sail battles, you know, British versus French, anybody versus anybody, in this whole era, the general rule of thumb, if you, if you look at the statistics of how many men were on board and how many were casualties, is that the winners are going to have 12 to 15 percent casualties, the losers are going to pack it in and surrender when they get to about 30 percent casualties, if that many. The Lawrence, they got to about 75 percent casualties after two hours and they haven't packed it in. This crew are sticking with their commander, they're sticking with, their, with the, trying to resist, but they're helpless at 2.30 in the afternoon. Every gun has been knocked off its carriage or somehow disabled, the rigging is in tatters. They're helpless. And Perry probably would have had to surrender within the next few minutes or just have everybody killed on board if he hadn't, and, and something would have broken. Uh, but the wind came back, and the wind came from the southeast and started moving the action along, and in relative terms, the Lawrence dropped back. So this leaves Perry still alive, but on a useless ship. And he's very fortunate that he still had a boat that was usable, because a lot of the other ships, their boats were so, so shot to splinters, they couldn't leave the ship. But he had a boat, and so he decides he's going to go and row over to the Niagara, because it's a fresh, undamaged ship. And he, uh, he transfers by boat, leaves it up to Yarnall what to do. Well, Yarnall says that he waited until, the American record is that he waited until uh, he knew Perry was on board the Niagara, 
and then surrendered the Lawrence, lowered the flag so that she wouldn't get hit anymore, so that they wouldn't have any more men killed when they couldn't fight back. Was that significant at what moment he brought the flag down on the Lawrence? I don't particularly think so, because I don't think the Lawrence would have been taking very many hits at that point because she wasn't giving any fire, and the action is starting to move away from the Lawrence, so maybe a few t passing vessels at the tail end of the British line might have taken a shot on her with small caliber guns. But the main action, the Queen Charlotte and the Detroit were moving away from her, and they knew that the next action would be against the Niagara. And, uh, and the British saw Perry transfer. They knew what was going on, and they shifted fire to the boat. And uh, so the boat's getting splashes all around it. So the, the fact that the Lawrence surrendered uh, is, um, uh, they, they must have surrendered because they were taking some hits from some of the British vessels, and Yarnell saw no point in exposing themselves to further fire when he knew Perry was in position to continue the fight on the next ship. So he knew that his surrender of the Lawrence was not signifying surrender of Perry, by Perry. What kind of shape was the British fleet in at this point? Uh, well, they, they, had, they had suffered severe damage from the fight the Lawrence had put up over those two hours before all their guns were disabled. So they had significant damage. I don't know exactly how many of their guns were out of action, but uh, they had suffered very severe damage to their rigging and had number, a large number of, of dead and wounded. Uh, they were about to get many more from the Niagara, but uh, uh, their casualties were significant and their damage was severe too. How long did it take Perry to get from the Lawrence over to the Niagara? Uh, probably about 15 minutes. Uh, rowing? Yeah, four men rowing, for, rowing like hell, rowing for their lives because they're trying to, over, the, the Niagara is sailing away from them probably at three or four knots. And even four knots for an 18, 20 foot boat is, is a respectable pace. And these men are tired. They've been sailing the ship since six in the morning, a lot of maneuvering. They've been working the guns for three hours. And, but now they're rowing for their lives to, to cover this quarter to half mile. We, we, we don't know the exact distance, but it was probably, my estimate is it was at least a quarter, not more than half a mile. When Perry got aboard the Niagara, do you have any idea what kind of conversation went on between him and Elliot, who was captain of the Niagara? Well, funny you should mention it. There's not an exact record of it. There's not an agreement of exactly what got said between them. Perry never wrote anything about it afterwards uh, beyond that uh, Elliot volunteered to take the boat and go back and bring up the lagging gunboats, which at that point was an absolutely superfluous errand because the, the wind had come from the southeast, which is where they had been left behind, and so the wind would have got to them first and was bringing them along. So they would have been in range within minutes anyway, and they were closing in. So Elliot, I think, just didn't want to be on the same deck with Perry anymore. No record of Perry saying, what in the world were you doing? Why didn't you join me? No. Uh, at the time, we only have Elliot's description. That uh, Elliot's description is that Perry was very discouraged and said the day was lost and, uh, and that uh, it was up to Elliot to cheer him up and say, we can save the day. Take my ship. It's fresh and I'll go, lag up, I'll, I'll go bring up the lagging gunboats and we'll win this yet. And, and, and was, uh, Elliot's version is that he cheered up Perry and and prompted him to do what he, what he did next. But that's Elliot defending himself 30 years later. What did Perry do next? Uh, probably what Elliot was about to do if Perry had gotten killed. Uh, Elliot, uh, while he'd hung back, he, he, he did recognize an opportunity when he saw these badly damaged British ships staggering along and he has a fresh ship. I think he was gonna sail ahead of them a little bit and then sail downwind across their bows and pour raking fire down the length of their decks that they would not be able to respond to. So Perry orders another downwind turn, sails across the bow of the, of the uh, Detroit, 
and the Detroit knows this is coming, so they're trying to maneuver to avoid it, but their rigging is shot up, the Queen Charlotte's rigging is shot up, they collide, they get locked in collision, and so the British ships are helpless to maneuver right when the Niagara sails across their bow. And one broadside was really just about all it took, because this broadside is delivered at a range of, from about here to the wall, about 75 feet, and the guns are double-shotted, there's a bag of grape on top of every ball, and so in the space of probably about seven or eight seconds, over 600 pounds of hot metal go roaring down their decks. And, and that would have been absolutely devastating. Did they surrendered at that point? Not quite yet, but a few minutes later, because the Niagara uh, stopped on the lee side, put another broadside into them about two minutes later, and after that one they surrendered. How long did the whole battle last? About three and a half hours. And when, what happened then? I mean, did the Americans board the British ships or? Uh, eventually, what, what after, the, the, after the British vessels surrendered, uh, two of the smaller ones tried to run back to Detroit, but some of our ships took off after them, shot a few balls close to them, and then they surrendered as well. So by about 3.15, everybody had surrendered. And then they, then they anchored, because uh, everybody needed to sort out damage, and the southeast wind was taking the Americans away from their base. And so the British surrendered so that they wouldn't get fired upon any further by trying to run away. So they anchored as well when the Americans anchored. And then everybody anchored in a, probably in a fairly small area within a half mile of each other. And then it was up to the Americans to send boats along to put some officers and crew to take charge of the, of the prizes, as they called them, the captured vessels. What were the casualties? Uh, well, on the Lawrence, they were, they were very heavy. It was 22 dead and 61 wounded out of a crew of 103 effective and maybe another dozen sick. Um, so it was, but overall casualties were 24% um, for both sides. But the ratio of dead to wounded is about 20% dead and, and the rest wounded. But that's 24% uh, casualties on both sides is very heavy. And uh, there is the quote that uh Perry is known for that he actually did say, and that is, we have met the enemy and they are ours. Yes, that's a very dramatic summing up. Uh, and it's probably one of the most quoted lines in American naval history. Actually, don't give up the ship and we have met the enemy and they are ours, are probably the two best known lines in US naval history, and they're both associated with the Battle of Lake Erie. Uh, the rest of Perry's message was, uh, that message was to General Harrison to let him know that uh, they'd won the battle and to get ready to move his troops forward. What happened to Perry after the battle? Uh, well, he was still in command of the squadron for the dur duration of that season for another month. They assisted the army in moving across and invading Ontario. The British were pulling back and retreating, so there wasn't any more naval fighting. But um, uh, he, he actually left the squadron in charge of Elliott, his second in command, so he could ride off with Harrison as, a, as an unofficial aide to be in on the action, which was, frankly, a pretty irresponsible thing to do because he's, uh, he's, he's giving help to Harrison, perhaps, but it's not really necessary. And at the same time, he's, he's not in charge of his ships where, where they might be summoned back to, uh, to transfer crews to Lake Ontario. They might be summoned to help attack something on the Niagara Peninsula. They might have to defend themselves against Indian attack. I mean, they're all, there's, there's the fall weather closing in. Uh, there are all these things that say you've got major responsibilities, but. Perry was so determined to be in on the action that he delegates tending, taking care of the ships to Elliott and goes rides off with Harrison. What was the upshot of the U.S. victory in uh, the Battle of Lake Erie in, in terms of the whole war? 
Strategically, it was, it was very, very important because it allowed us to regain the Michigan territory, to regain the Northwest. We regained what we lost at the beginning of the war because it compelled the British to pull back from the Detroit River area. Uh, they lost Fort Malden, Amherstburg. The, it severed the Indian Alliance. Tecumseh was killed by the overtaking American army at the Battle of the Thames, which is about close to London, Ontario. So it, uh, it destroyed the British position in the far west, severed them from their Indian alliance, and let us regain the territory we had lost. And all that adds up to uh, uh, a pretty big, important package. You, you say in your book that at, at some point subsequent to the battle, uh, Elliot challenged Perry to a duel? Uh, that was a couple of years afterwards, actually. The, see, after the battle, um, Elliot... Elliot got off very lightly, I think, in terms of Perry writing a, uh, a guarded but favorable report to the Secretary of the Navy. Uh, Perry says Captain Elliot behaved with his customary gallantry. Well, that might not be saying much, but remember, Elliot had been decorated for bravery in action previously, so his customary gallantry was assumed to be pretty high. And that's all he said about it. And, uh, uh, but the officers and men of the Lawrence were complaining in letters home that the Niagara had hung back and had not supported them. And when these letters got home, some of them got published in newspapers, and then people are accusing Elliot of cowardice. And then Elliot wants some supporting letter from Perry to say, I was important to the victory. I helped you out. I, uh, I, I couldn't come up because of the wind or, or something like that. Uh, again, it's not a record of an exact conversation, but he, but he, did, he did ask Perry to write a more extensive, favorable commentary for him. Well, by now, Perry's had a little time to think about it and has, has decided, you know, maybe I, maybe I wasn't the brightest move to jump in with both feet right off the bat, but well, I think what Perry was thinking of was, if you had supported me, this would have been over in half the time. And so now Perry's not going to contradict himself, but he's not going to write another word either. And so I think each of them came to, as I, as I put in the book, I said each of them came to regard the other as an ungrateful wretch. Uh, Elliot feels that Perry did everything tactically wrong and it was only because he brought the Niagara up intact that Perry had a chance of gaining the victory and so he considered Perry ungrateful for not acknowledging him more and Perry thought he was that Elliot was incredibly ungrateful because I didn't bring charges against you for not supporting me for disobeying for hanging back in a, in a deadly action and uh, so each of them got progressively more angry and bitter about it as the correspondence went back and forth over the years and uh, it was a couple of years afterwards that uh, Elliot uh, challenged Perry to a duel, and Perry wisely declined, uh, saying, I will not give you this opportunity to silence me unless you will stand trial on a court-martial, and if you're acquitted, then I'll meet you in a duel. Well, the idea of going through a court-martial to air all this dirty laundry took uh, all of Elliot's ardor for the duel away. Never happened. Fortunately, you say in the book that something like seven ships have been named after Perry, but none have been named after Elliot. <laughs> That's true. Naval ships. Yes. <laughs> Elliot had a knack for pissing people off. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was a competent officer, but he had an incredibly large ego. He was a pretty gruff character. And he always, uh, in his later career, there are many instances where he managed to get sideways with higher authority. What was uh, Perry's naval career like after the after the battle. Well, he went home a, a, a great hero and was relieved of the Lake Erie Squadron, which he had asked to be. He is given command of a frigate, uh, a major warship for us at the time, but it, the, it's named the Java after a ship Constitution sank at the beginning of the war. Um, so it's the U.S. frigate Java. It's in Baltimore being built, but it's not finished in time for the war. 
So Perry sails as her commander to the Mediterranean at the time of the second set of Barbary pirate wars in 1815, 1816, but they don't see action because by the time they get there, the, uh, the, the war has been uh, uh, brought to a close. It's uh, the, the Barbary pirates made peace with the U.S. again. And uh, so he sails to the Mediterranean, and then he comes home from there. He's on shore, doesn't have a command for a couple of years. And then in 1818, uh, 18, he's given a command of a squadron on a diplomatic mission to take an ambassador down to Venezuela, which had just declared its independence from Spain. There were the wars of liberation going on in South America at the time. He dies of yellow fever on this mission, and it's only six years after Lake Erie. It's his 34th birthday. He dies on his 34th birthday. Well, we are out of time, but before we finish, would you tell the viewers again about this museum, the Erie Maritime Erie Museum? Erie Maritime Museum in Erie, Pennsylvania. It's operated by the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission with the assistance of the flagship Niagara League, a local nonprofit. It uh, tells the story of the War of 1812 on the Great Lakes. It also tells some of the stories of the later maritime history of fishing industry and trade and commerce and development of the lake's uh, navigational system. And it's also the home port for the U.S. Brig Niagara, which sails as a sailing school vessel to teach people about the War of 1812 and about uh, what life was like in the age of sail on a sailing ship. We have been speaking with Walter Ribka. He is the author of this book, The Lake Erie Campaign of 1813. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.